Good evening. Good to be here with each one of you again this evening. Tara warned me that it might be kind of slim pickings tonight with all the illness going around and other places that people could be. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do is to move to the front half of each side. If we can get everyone up closer to me and closer to each other. I'm hoping for a lot of feedback and involvement tonight with this message. More of a Bible study than a preaching message. Reagan, can I get you to help hand these papers out? And Colton Stauffer, would you help hand out papers for the other side? Or you just split them in half? How many need a pen or pen? we have pencils? How many need a pencil tonight? Are you good then? You, okay. Any other? Anyone else need a pencil? All right. There was one over here. Sorry, Chad, you're kind of left back there by yourself. Did you did anybody get a papers to Chad and Laura? Thank you. There are plenty of papers, so if the children want one, have at it. I'm just going to take them home and burn them when this is done if they're not used. So, All right. Thank you, Colton and Reagan. My subject, my, the, topic, or the, the title of the study tonight is, Who is God? This evening, if I were to take each of you aside one-on-one and ask you who God is, I probably would get a number of different responses. And that doesn't mean that you all just disagree with each other. It's just that when it comes to who God is, he's so big and so multifaceted. I hope that's the right word. But the idea that he, he has so many different attributes and sides to him that each of us, may look at God just a little bit differently in how we perceive him. It's also why we have to be careful that we don't just go for one side of him, the merciful side or the judgment side, that we don't just go for the the fact that he's has great patience at times because we don't know when that may be up. 
It also doesn't mean that we should just be fearful of him, scared of him as if he was an abusive, like an abusive father. But we can have hope as we look at tonight. So tonight I am going to ask you here in a little bit after I take do a few more thoughts, but you'll see at the top of your paper on the one side there's um, two long lines there that you can write down, and I'm going to ask you what you believe God's attributes are. But when we look at him, he is complex. And so if one of you would ask me today, who is God? And then you asked me again in one week, and then you asked me again another month, I think my my answer wouldn't necessarily always be the same. That doesn't mean that I, I can't make up my mind, but it's it might depend on the mood that I am, what I'm going through right at that moment, to what part of God means the most to me at the time that you ask me. It can also depend upon which person of God that we're looking at. Because now in the church age, we know quite clearly with the New Testament and the revelation of, the, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he's three persons. He's not just what appeared in a lot of ways to the Jews of the Old Testament as a single person. But we recognize today that he has three parts. And it depends which part we're looking at. If we look at the Son, we do see more of a merciful, loving side than maybe we would just looking at the Father. If you look at the Holy Spirit, we think of someone who's, who would it was Jesus called a comforter, someone that helps us, that aids us in our walk with Christ. And so it depends which one we're looking at, focusing on when we, if we're thinking about who God is. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding at times that the world wants to just pick on one area and try to say that that's who God is. And if he's that, he can't be the other things. And I think when you look in the Old Testament, we're going to look at a lot of different stories. We're going to do a really fast flyover of a lot of stories in the Bible. And one story, you think of God in one way. And in another, you think of him in another way. Some people would say, well, that means that God is in conflict with himself. But I believe if we step back a bit from each story, we can also see some similarities in each one of who God is. The fact is, God never changes. Even though which attribute may come out in an individual story it doesn't change who God is. He's always the same. Malachi 3, verses 6 and 7, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Even, even the nation of Israel didn't always keep their side of the covenant but God always kept his side. There were times where he seemed silent for hundreds of years. And yet that did not mean that he had gone away or didn't care. I'd like to turn to James chapter 1. 
Scripture talks in the New Testament here also of God not changing who He is. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of God worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart... Sorry, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Focusing in on verse 17, people have been deceived into thinking that just because we have an easy life or a good life, that it means that God winks at sin or overlooks things. Or things go go harshly and we think differently. But ultimately, God never changes. He doesn't change his mind, even though there's times in Scripture where he said that he repented of something. It doesn't mean that he became something that he didn't mean to. It just simply means that he stopped, he forgave because of their repentance or because the, the, the people changed, turned back to him, and he paused the judgment that he was going to do. It did not change the character of who he is. At this point now, I'm going to ask you, what are some of the attributes of God. And I forget to I forgot to get one of the sheets for myself. Sovereign. The sovereign. Another one? He's love. Holy. He's just. Merciful. Omnipresent or all present. Omniscient. And what's the other omni that he is? Omnipotent. Omniscience means he's all-knowing. Omnipotent means he's all-present. Any others? And then as we go through these stories, we can also see some more. 
I wanted to read a few more verses there in James chapter 1. Verses 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So even though we as God's creatures of choice can be tempted and make a decision to do what is right or to do what is wrong. God can never be tempted. So as I mentioned earlier, the Bible would talk about that God um, repented of a thing that he was going to do, basically meaning he stopped. He was going to judge somebody. They repented and he turned back. We make wrong decisions and we have to repent. Because we sinned, we did something wrong. God does not have to do that. We understand as we look at some stories, we see his mercy. And why is he merciful? Because he's righteous. We also look at his acts of judgment sometimes. And why does he do that? Also, because he's righteous and holy. I've got a number of different uh, stories, I'll call like stories in the Bible. Um, I don't have time to read all the passages. We're going to read quite a few, see how many we can get through here tonight. A number of them them are in the Old Testament, and then we have a number in the New Testament. What I want us to think about, some people today would claim that the God of the New Testament is not the same God of the Old Testament. One is hateful, judgmental, just a bad person. Then they point to Christ and they say, well, he's good. I'll follow him, but I won't follow the God of the Old Testament. And they struggle with that. But as we go through, you'll see that I have a blank on each after each of these stories. And I want you to give some attributes of God related to this story. So the first one is of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I understand almost all of these stories are well known, but I'd like to read them to kind of refresh our memory as we think about these stories in relationship to who God is. Genesis chapter 3. 3 verse 7 and the eyes of them were both open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons and they heard the voice of the Lord Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him where art thou and he said I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself and he said who told thee thou was naked Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman thou gavest to me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above all the beasts of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. 
And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy consumption and thy conception and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee and unto Adam he said because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field and we know the story we come down to the end where God made them coats through the sacrifice of animals. And in verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of the Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. What attributes do we see God exhibiting in this story? All of them. (laughs) Except one. Why does he appear to not be omniscient? (laughs) Did you eat? I think it's interesting. I think it was more he wanted Adam and Eve to make right what they had done wrong, but he acted like he didn't know. But yes, I believe he showed his justice and his mercy. He could have killed them and started over. He was God. They deserved it. They had sinned. But yet, God showed mercy. But justice demanded that something had to change. And that was, now they were had their eyes open and they knew they were naked. They knew they had to... They had to account for sin... In their life, they could no longer. They were no longer pure. The story of Abel. It's in Genesis chapter four. I'm not going to read it. I think we know it very well. Both Cain and Abel. One was a hunter, or raised animals. Maybe not a hunter, but raised animals. The other was a farmer. God rejects Cain's offering but accepts Abel's. What attributes of God do we see in this story? I believe in requiring an offering, God was showing his need for there to be justice, judgment, to cover sins on a regular basis as we would see later on in the the law of Moses the children of Israel would need to make animal sacrifices once a year they needed to make a sacrifice I don't know for sure but I don't believe that Cain's offering the problem was that it was fruits of the field because later on Jewish people in the old covenant would bring offerings of their harvest as a way to honor God. But I believe it was the hearts of these men that made the difference. Cain would then, I would like to read a few verses. Cain would then, um, God would talk to Cain about what he had done. Picking up verse 10 of chapter 4, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth 
unto me from the ground, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. It feels like there's very little mercy and only judgment here for Cain. And we see that in some stories. Now I'd like to think about the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 5, or 6, verse 5. And God saw that the wicked of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the heart's thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God is gracious. Go along with the mercy. It doesn't say that Noah was perfect as we saw with Enoch. And I thought it was interesting as I looked at this tonight. It seems like God from the time of Abel's death until Noah, that he didn't really intervene on earth except for him taking Enoch off the earth so he didn't need to die. We don't really see God acting, but I don't believe it wasn't that he didn't care. But evil reached a point where he could no longer look away from it. So what attributes do we see in this story? He knew what they were thinking. He could see what they were all doing. It wasn't that he could only be at one place. He was omnipresent everywhere. And he saw that they were just all evil, except for Noah. The next story, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Sinar. And they dwelt there and said one to another, Go, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, and they had for mortar. And they said, Go, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the whole face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Let us go down and there confound their languages that man may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from hence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Why was this city a problem to God? Why did he need to come down and scatter them? They no longer look to God for their purpose. They no longer wanted to worship and bring him glory. I believe it was all about man and what man could do. 
And we see the world is right back there today again. I'm not saying that this is the first time since Tower of Babel, but the world is there again. We're going to go do this. We're going to go do that. We're going to basically make it so God can't stop us. But God could have once again had reason to destroy them, but his mercy said that he had another plan, and that was to scatter them across the earth. Job. In the story of Job, we all know this one well. Job 1, verses 6 to 12. So what attribute of God came into play in this story? Why did God seem to taunt Satan with the example of Job? Does that fit God's attributes? Or is there an attribute that we haven't mentioned yet tonight of why God did this with Job and said what he did to Satan? Maybe there's no good answer to that. But yet what we do see coming from this story that I do believe is, is, I know it's comforting to me, I hope it's comforting to each one of you also, is that Satan could not do anything that God did not allow him to do. At first, God said to Satan, you can touch anything of Job's that he has. You just can't touch Job. And he literally took everything away, his family and his possessions. And so we see that God is all-powerful. No man, no angel, no demon can do anything that God does not allow. And so we see, once again, all his attributes of all-knowing and all-powerful Is God merciful in the story of Job? He spared his life. What else did he do? One of the children, what did what did God do to show love and mercy to Job? Do you know what happened at the end of the book of Job? He restored all. What's that? Some of the things he restored He lost ten children, and he got ten more children given to him from the Lord, and all his possessions doubled. So even though it seemed that in the times in the story of Job that God was not merciful and loving. By the end of the story, we see that he is. Abraham and Sarah, moving on. I'm running out of time. Abraham and Sarah, and entertaining strangers. Genesis 18, 1 to 15. 
How many know what happened in this story to Abraham's wife? When the strangers said that Abraham and Sarah were still going to have a child that was going to carry on and become a great nation. How many know what Sarah did? She laughed. Why do you think she laughed? Apparently, I believe she had faith in God, but apparently she, did, she thought that this thing was beyond God at this point. Let's take this away from God. And let's, I think everybody here believes that God can do anything that he puts in his mind. But let's say you had a person and someone, and you know he could lift 500 pounds, and then someone walks up and goes, well, he can lift 1,000. Would you laugh? You probably would, knowing that, yeah, he can do 500, but you've seen him do 500, and that's just about all he can do. And so Sarah, I believe she had faith in God, but she didn't necessarily believe in all the attributes that we know of today. Child of promise? No? Laughter? I guess I did not realize that. Any other thoughts before we move on? Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Once again, you can write this down next to the the story. Genesis 18, picking up after the three strangers were there. As they left, they started to walk towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham walked with them. And it became clear to Abraham that they were going to look at the city and to decide what to do. We don't have all the details about how, all, how Abraham was aware of it. But he began to plead with them to not destroy it. And we know why. His, he had family there. His nephew, Lot, and Lot's wife and children were there. And we see God's mercy through this story. That as Abraham pled with them, he went from 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. That if there were only 10 righteous, would God not destroy it? And the Lord promised that he would not destroy it for the sake of 10. But we know through the rest of the story that there were less than 10 righteous in the city. But through that, we see that God is merciful. You can have a large city. We don't know how large it was. I would assume that tens of thousands of people lived in this city And there was great evil done there, and yet God was willing for the sake of ten to not destroy it. And so he does have great mercy, even though his judgment should require judgment, or his justice should require judgment on a city. The story of Isaac and Rebekah. When God worked out the details through Abraham to find a wife for Isaac, God did not want Abraham to recognized that God did not want Isaac to take a wife of the Canaanites. He needed to marry someone from his home area where Abraham had come from. What attributes of God do we see in this story? 
I think it shows that God cares and loves us even down to the small details, even down to the things that seem not as quite as important as some of the things that happen in the Bible. He does care about who we marry and what our choices, life choices will take us. He cares about us even down to the point of helping the servant of Abraham know who to ask to be Isaac's wife. The story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob is chosen, Esau is rejected. We see there the, some of the attributes of God. What do we see there? Do we see God's attribute of mercy with Esau? It doesn't feel like it, but yet I believe that Esau had his opportunities and his chance to make things right. Then in Genesis 32, 24-30, Jacob wrestles with God. What attributes do we see with God there? I believe once again that he is merciful and loving. He met Jacob and he wanted to teach Jacob and to strengthen Jacob's faith. And I don't believe that we wrestle with God in the same way that Jacob did, but we may wrestle in our heart, in our minds. And are we willing to continue to wrestle until we get the answer. Jacob wrestled until he got hit. God, the person that was representing God in that struggle. Jacob wanted to be blessed. He wanted to win the struggle. Now that doesn't mean I don't believe he knew that he was fighting against God, but rather fighting with him. And so we see that God does care about us. At that point, I guess in my mind, it's hard to see that Jacob really desired to know God, to follow after him. But yet God still cared for him. Joseph in Egypt, this is a story that we could talk about all night. But summing it up, as we all know the story, how God protected Joseph, put him in positions of power so that he could fulfill his plan for all of the nation of Israel. What attributes do we see of God here? Omniscient and omnipotent. Who could have made a slave into the right-hand man to Pharaoh? Only an all-powerful being. We also see his mercy. Joseph's brothers deserved death for what they did in sending Joseph to Egypt as a slave. And yet God was merciful and set up a way for them to survive the coming famine that they didn't even know about. The birth and deliverance of Moses. Moses was delivered as a baby. should have been killed. We see his mercy and also omniscience and omnipotence there also 
putting him into the palace of Pharaoh. I'm going to have to just speed it up here. The burning bush. We see that God has power over nature. Can cause fire without burning of a plant. The ten plagues, we see God's total power over all of nature, over health, over animals, over the water, over the air of every area he is able. And then the Red Sea, once again, we see his omniscience, or omnipotent power of what he's able to do. Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the children of Israel had just left Egypt a few weeks before, and now they stood before Mount Sinai. And God met with Moses. What attributes do we see in this story? God's holiness. There needed to be a law to guide sinful men towards him. Yes, it would prove to show that man needs more than just law, that we need a savior, but it was his first step in his plan of showing his holiness and his requirements. The 40 years in the wilderness, during that time, they bickered and complained just like they had done many times before, but the one time God sent serpents into the midst and started biting them and killing them. Then he sent Moses to put a bronze serpent on a stake. All they had to do if they had been bitten by a snake was to look at that bronze servant. Once again proving his love and mercy to people who didn't deserve it. Destruction of Jericho. What attributes of God do we see there? Once, what's that? Merciful. Merciful. I would say like Jerry mentioned on the first story, Adam and Eve, that we see all of them there. If you pick out different people in that story, the city of Jericho was evil, and so we see God's justice being taken care of through judgment. We also see his omnipotence with the ability to just make these mammoth walls fall down. I guess as a small child I always pictured maybe a four or five foot thick wall like you you know maybe an oversized stone fence in a field. You know, I pictured that. You know, just a little earthquake could just topple that thing right over but archaeologists have dug up the walls and I believe they were 20, 30 feet at least wide. And yet they fell down. It should have. It should have. It seemed in man's eyes impossible for those walls to fall down. Fall down. So I have an inkling that the children of Israel, as they walked around those walls, looked at those walls, and I have a feeling they struggled to understand how God was going to do it. But He did because of His omnipotence. He was able to do it. We also see through the story of Rahab, His love and mercy, and I had to. As I was thinking about that after Owen's message this morning, 
God showed mercy even to those outside of the children of Israel, outside the camp, as Owen talked about this morning. And so his love and mercy extends to all mankind and often to those who don't, believe, don't appear to deserve it. Gideon, the story of Gideon. The children of Israel were being persecuted. They were hiding in caves and woods and thickets trying to not be killed by the Philistines. They tried to plant crops so they could live. And the enemy would come in and burn them or take them. And they were crying out to the Lord. And first God sent a prophet to promise them deliverance. And then he sent them Gideon. Why did God pick a man like Gideon? What was he doing when God came to him? He was hiding. Didn't seem like a very courageous, confident man. But I believe it went, as God went on then to use Gideon, then Gideon had an army of 30,000. You thought, well, now he can do something. He's not just one man. He's 30,000. And what happened to that? What happened to Gideon's army? I'm going to pick on my nephew, Derek. Did he go out to fight with 30,000 or did he have less? How many less? Do you remember how many? One of the other children here, remember how many Gideon ended up taking with him? 300. Did they have uh, guns and tanks and what did they take with them? Anybody remember what he took with him? A pot and a pitcher with a lamp and a basically something to carry water. Not even any swords. Why would God do that? I believe it was to show that he was the one that was going to win the battle. And so he was once again showing his attributes through that and his mercy. Ruth and Boaz, the story of Ruth. We see that God redeems not just merciful he didn't just send a nice another nice husband along for Ruth but he actually brought her into the lineage of Jesus gave her a heritage that she did not have with her own people and we see the amazing mercy of God there Samson was an imperfect man at the Philistines to judge of Philistines that were wicked. Once again, what do we see in the story of Samson of God? I believe we see his justice and love that he sent along someone to help the children of Israel. But he also, there was judgment and justice on Samson. He didn't get off scot-free because of his own failings. I'm going to skip over the calling of Samuel. I'm going to skip over. Let's go to David and the Ark of the Covenant. We just had this in Sunday school recently. How many remember um, what happened when they were trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant? Someone reached out, touched it. 
one of the children know what happened in that story? When they touched the Ark of the Covenant, what happened to them? They died. So once again, we see that the object of the Ark of the Covenant was a, a, a representation of the holiness of God. And so they had been told to never touch it or they would die. So we see his holiness and his justice. David sinning with Bathsheba. What attributes of God do we see in this story? I believe we see that we see God's justice in the sense that sin can not go unpunished. The child, di- the child died, even though David was sorry and repented. There was consequences to sin, but yet we see God's grace and mercy in that He blessed David and Bathsheba with other children in spite of the sin, and one of those was Solomon. Solomon's dream. What attributes of God do we see in this when God came to Solomon and asked him what he he desired? I believe once again that God can do anything. He's able to do anything. He's able to make someone wise. At the dedication of Solomon's temple... Solomon and the children of Israel came to that temple to dedicate it and worshiped God. And because of their worship, he descended and his presence entered the temple. So he has desire, God, part of his attributes are a desire to be worshiped. And I believe it's because of his omnipotence. Altar and the, the Elijah and the altar of Baal. Uh, Baal, sorry. Elijah and the altar of Baal. What attributes of God do we see in this story? He is all powerful. He can make something burn up that's saturated with water. Yes, man has that capability today with our weapons, explosives. We can make even wet things burn, but at that time that was not possible. And yet today God can stop weapons. He can stop anything with his power. I'm going to skip over the next few. Jonah and Nineveh. The story of Jonah. What attributes of God do we see with that? Mercy. Nineveh didn't deserve it, but God, through his mercy, sent a man to tell them the truth. Now I'm going to run through some quickly in the New Testament. The angel appears to Mary and Joseph. What attribute does this show of God? His omniscience. He's all-knowing. He knows the future. He knew what was going to happen. 
the birth of Jesus, God shows his omnipotence, his power over nature that a child could be born outside of procreation and that that child could be fully human and fully God. Jesus in the temple, Luke chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We see Jesus taking time, actually disobeying his parents, which I think rarely happened in his growing up years. Disappeared, and where'd they find him in the temple? Both, I believe, instructing and listening to the teachers there. Why would he do that? Later on, when his ministry was going on, he would often call a lot of those men that were in that role as being bad people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a lot of what they did. He called them empty tombs. But I think it shows his mercy that he loved those people even the ones that weren't on the right track. He cared about them. He wanted to spend time instructing and teaching. The baptism of Jesus shows Jesus was righteous and obedient to his Father. In the Godhead, one role, one person, one attribute from one of those three never goes against or contradicts another one. Jesus calls his disciples Because he was all-powerful, God is all-powerful, he didn't call rich and powerful people. He called mostly just hard-working, blue-collar peasant class, who many of them probably didn't have more than a basic education. The Sermon on the Mount. We see his attributes of righteousness and holiness and a call for us to live that way. Jesus heals the sick. He casts out demons, feeds the hungry, showing God's all-powerfulness even over those things that seem almost impossible to deal with. Today, man talks about, well, how can we stop the hunger, especially in nations that are very, very poor? Recently, Elon Musk talked about, well, if you can tell me how to do it, I'll give up a portion of my fortune to help you do it. And as the article said, no one's come forward yet with the idea of how to feed and take care of the hunger of the masses around the world. Only God can do that. Jesus has the power to do that. The woman caught in adultery. This story has been misused and abused. Some say it doesn't belong in the Bible. But I believe through this story, we learn two things of God's attributes. First, he is merciful to those who have failed. But secondly, he also calls those that have been caught in that to repent and to live holy because he is holy. Jesus Jesus raises Lazarus once again, power over death. We knew through his other parts of his ministry he had power over sickness, disease, demons, hunger, but he also had the ultimate power over death. Triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We learn 
that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. But we also learn through the trial of Jesus that his kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come to win political victories here on this earth. He came to have the ultimate victory in heaven. Death on the cross, what attributes do we see there? We see humility. What else? What? Love. And it's not necessarily an attribute that we'd give to the Father, but we do see that from the Son. And I think also the Holy Spirit, submission to the will of the Father. Then after his resurrection, he appears to the disciples. Why did he bother appearing to the disciples when basically he was shortly going to be returning to heaven? Once again, I believe the attribute of love. He loved them, cared about them. His ascension into heaven showed that he was his attribute of being God of the universe and worthy to sit at the Father's right hand. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, we see his attribute of justice. Saul meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, we see his attribute of love again, even towards those who hated him. Delivering Peter out of prison, we see that he was all-powerful, even over prisons with many guards and bars. And last one there, John's revelation on Patmos. We see that he is omniscient, able to know the future, and that he is ultimately all-powerful and requires justice, as we see towards the end of that revelation, that everyone will be judged the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats. So does the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament look different now that we broke it down this way? Do we see different attributes in one than the other? It's interesting, isn't it? When you break them down, you break the stories down. I don't believe we're just trying to see it. I believe it's quite clear that God is the same, Old Testament or New. Yes, he, his, the way he works with man has changed, but he has not changed. He sent Jesus so that we could know the part of the Godhead in a more personal way, but he did not change. I hope what we looked at tonight gives you comfort and not fear, and that it challenges us to to get to know God better, His Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will turn it back over to Philip.